Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 720 with Howard Bihar. I don't care whether you're a doctor, lawyer, engineer, fire chief, whether you're a barista, it doesn't make any difference what you do in life. There's only one reason for our existence, and that's serving other human beings. Now, sometimes it's hard, difficult to make a connection of why you're serving them. If you're a widget maker, for example, making widgets is going to a printing press. It's not easy to take that widget in your own mind and take it all the way to you or me who gets a newspaper or magazine to inform or entertain us. But that widget maker had something to do with that. And it's us making those connections that really makes a difference in life. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt, and you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have such a great conversation for you today. Former president of Starbucks, Howard Bihar is joining us today, and he gets into some great stuff, but I have to remind you, you just heard our ads, and one of those ads was Toast Tab, uh, the by far most recommended POS on the show. We told you in that ad that if you use our link, we can save you up to $1,000 worth of incentives that Toast is offering. We're going to match that and send you a check for $1,000 if you use your, our link. But you have to use our link. So if you know of any anybody out there who's looking to update their restaurant uh, with technology that will get them ready for 2020 uh, with the increase of online ordering and delivery uh Put this offer on their table, $2,000 worth of incentives between what Toast is offering and what we're offering. It's the best deal out there that I know of. So help us get 1,000 restaurants, $1,000. That's our goal. Spread the word. Again, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. In uh, today's episode, it is so good. It was such an honor to connect with Howard Bihar. In this conversation, we talk about uh, unit economics being the best way to measure your growth. The one reason why or the one reason for our existence of the six P's to living your life, why you need to wear your hat no matter where you are. And we'll get into what it means to wear your hat. And we also dive into why it starts with knowing who you are. Uh, really 
great intrinsic conversation. Uh, lots of self-reflection will come out of today's chat. I promise you that. Really great stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. All right. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Howard Bihar. Howard, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am totally unstoppable today. Yes, that is what we like to hear. So for 21 years, Bahar led Starbucks domestic business as president of North America, and he became the founding president of Starbucks International, opening the very first store outside of North America in Japan. During his tenure, he participated in the growth of the company from only 28 stores to over 15,000 stores, spanning five continents that blows my mind. Uh, he served on the Starbucks board of director for two years before retiring. Additionally, Howard is the author of It's Not About the Coffee, Leadership Pr- Principles from a Life at Starbucks. And he has a second book, uh, The Magic Cup. I have not read that second book, am- admittedly, but I need to. You just put it on my radar. Thank you so much for doing that. And uh, before we dive into your story, when we find out how you got to where you are, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us, Howard? I got two for you this morning. There are no stressful situations, only stressful responses. Yes. And turn your fear into faith. All right. Let's go through that first one. Uh, There's no stressful situations, only stressful responses. Dissect that for us. Well, basically what it means is, is that that whatever's going on in your life, no matter how stressful it seems, it's, it's not the situation itself. It's the response to the situation. Mm. So if something bad happens to you, it's how you respond that determines the outcome. Yes. Uh, not the situation itself. I love it. And we are, by nature, a reactive species. We react. It's what we do. It's what so yeah, many right. species do. But we do have that ability to tap the brakes. And I'm guilty of it. We all kind of lose our cool sometimes. But you know, it, it's so powerful to know that you, you can choose your, your reaction. And that's a great way right. to get this thing started. So, man, you have an incredible story. Um, I listened to your audiobook fully at least twice, went through, made notes throughout the book. Um, it starts, I think it makes sense to start where the story starts for you as far as what I can tell. And it seems like it started in your parents' grocery store. Or is there something that I'm leaving off the table that we need to, to touch on before we get into that? No, that's, I mean, that was certainly a huge part of it. It. Uh, my dad had this little mom and pop grocery store. He was an immigrant to the United States in the early 1900s and couldn't speak the language and, and saved his pennies, nickels, and dimes and opened up a grocery store that couldn't have been more than 1,500 square feet total. Beautiful. You know, and it was in the north end of Seattle. And, you know, that's, I was there every day, you know, after I was born, I was the baby of the family and my mother was working in the store. And, and so I would be there every day, either she was taking care of me there or, or after school. I would go there. Yeah. So, it, I mean, how do you distill a, you know, a childhood of worth of lessons, a life worth of lessons from your parents into just a few minutes, right? So during this time, like wh- what impact did this growing up in this grocery store have on you? Take one big lesson that you learned from that experience or two. I know it's going to be hard, but like t- just get into that. Well, uh, you know, one lesson that I can remember and I didn't realize, realize its importance until uh, much later in life. But one day I was in the grocery store. I was probably maybe nine or 10 years old and my dad was up at the counter. He was ringing up the groceries for this for a customer that was coming in. You know, one of those human beings we call customers. <laughs> and he said, "Howard, go get me a couple of baskets of strawberries." 
And so I did. I brought him up to the front counter. He took those strawberries and he put them in the basket or in, in the back. And the customer left. And I was old enough to realize that he hadn't rung those berries up on the cash register. Now, this, this kind of cash register was one of those ones that had all the different buttons on that represented a different number and a hand crank. That was his cash register. So it's pretty obvious and, when yeah. somebody rings something up. You can't miss it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was obvious. It would go bing, you know, like yeah. that. And, and so I said to him, Dad, you forgot to ring those up. And he, and he just looked at me and he said, Son, not everything we do in life should we get paid for or do we get paid for. Mm. And these people happen to be, they're not just our customers, they're our friends as well. They're, and they're our neighbors. And I happen to know they love strawberries, and I also know that they're struggling today financially. And so strawberries are not inexpensive. So it's just my way of, of saying thank you for being our customer, and I'm glad you're a neighbor and our friend. And I never forgot that lesson, that not everything in life do you need to get paid for. And I think all too often in life we think we need to be rewarded for everything that we do, we need a pat on the back or we need uh, extra compensation or whatever it happens to be. And the truly great things in life, we don't get paid for, mm. and nor should we. The pay that we get <clears throat> is how we feel about ourselves. Wait, wait, so what is that truly great thing? What, in this moment, what was the truly great thing that you, can, you can't put a price on? Well, it was, it was the, <clears throat> the help in serving other people, mm. you know? I think we're all put on this earth to serve other people. There's, I don't care whether you're a doctor, lawyer, engineer, fire chief, whether you're a bar ace. It doesn't make any difference what you do in life. There's only one reason for our existence, and that's serving other human beings. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's hard, difficult to make a connection of why you're serving them. If you're a widget maker, for example, making widgets is going to a printing press. It's not easy to take that widget in your own mind and take it all the way to you or me who gets a newspaper or magazine to inform or entertain us. But that widget maker had something to do with that. Mm -hmm. And it's us making those connections that really makes a difference in life. I love that. And I, I, I love, and I think we'll get into this as the, the story unfolds and as you get into your, your time at Starbucks, but this idea of just like the human element, right? And how uh, to scale a business, we need systems, processes, and procedures, but we need to be able to, to implement these things without eliminating that ability to empathize and understand somebody's situation and to do what's best in that moment. Um, and maybe right. we can get into finding that balance as the story unfolds, because I think that's yeah. something amazing that Starbucks has done and it still does to this day. So I would love to get into that, but um, any other key lessons from your family, from this early time in your life? I know that you, you spend a lot of time growing at a furniture store and you, you really yeah. love self-discovery. Does it make sense to get into yeah. that right now or are we cutting? Well, things short? A, they're both similar. Yeah. Because, you know, what prepared me to lead an organization like Starbucks was the understanding that everything has to do with that one store, right? It, it's always, well, you know, what I always call it, it's unit-level economics and unit-level operations. And unless you're good in that one store, you're not going to be good across 15,000 stores. And so, and I learned so much, you know, because, you know, my dad would hire people. He'd run advertisements in the local newspaper. You know, he'd buy produce, he would sell produce, he would sell buy meat, sell meat. He had to do all sorts of things. And my, I got in the furniture business because my brother and my brother-in-law both had furniture stores. And it was the same thing there. You know, and so I got to see all the different pieces of what it was to run a retail business. Yeah. Uh, and go ahead. it gave me great strength that many people didn't have. 
Yeah. You, you, know, you mentioned unit economics and yeah. how close are you with Chris Schultz or Chris Schultz from, um, he's with Voodoo Donuts now and he was with Mark. Oh Pizza. yeah. I, I know Chris really well. Cause he brought up unit economics. I'm pretty sure it was him in that conversation and yeah. talking about when do you know it's time to scale? How do you scale? And he said, yeah. it's all about unit economics. And if you yeah. get into what, what he means by that unit economics, it really well, does that a little it, bit more. A lot of people say, geez, I'm just going to open a bunch of stores and, They'll take care of themselves. But unless you've got a unit, one store that's doing well. Now, maybe that store doesn't do well because you, you picked a bad location. So you might pick a second location just to see, or three or four to find out what you really have. But but they have to work on their own. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can make a, a, a multi-unit organization work unless each individual, individual store stands on its own. For Not only uh, has to stand on its own from an economic standpoint, from a people standpoint, from a service standpoint, from a cleanliness standpoint, they all have to do their job. Yes, you just answered my question. Uh, what is it? What do you mean by standalone? Uh, all these elements, whether it's economic, human, fill in the blank, they, yeah. it has to be self-sustaining. But how do you get uh, to the point where you have thousands of locations and each unit is self-sustaining? What is the secret to being so spread out? yet so, uh, I guess, centered around each store at the same time? Well, that took a long time. You don't, you don't go from, I started when there were 28 stores and there were a bunch of stores that weren't making any money, for example, in Chicago. And I'm there three months and I realized we have a problem and we're starting to raise money from venture capital firms. We, we were having a tough time because everybody was saying, well, it works in Seattle, but, but it's not working in Chicago. And so I moved to Chicago for three months trying to figure out what was wrong and trying to fix it. And we did fix it. And, but it, it, you have to make all this work. Now, does every store work? No. But the, the, you have to have a base of stores that do work so that you can see your future. You can say, if I do this, this, and this, and this, then those stores should work. And sometimes you make a mistake, you know. Sometimes it's a people mistake. Sometimes it's a, the, which are hard to fix, but, but it's, once you have once you have a lease signed, it's hard to get out of. But yeah. you know, if a person isn't making it in their position, maybe you find another place for them where they can make it, and you get mm-hmm. somebody that can do the job. I love it. But th- th- it all counts. So when when do you know it's? You said some stores just don't work, and no matter what you can do, like some stores just don't work. When do you know it's time to pull the plug on a store if it's not working? Uh, you know, that's an individual thing. Yeah, that's a, it depends. <laughs> that's a whole other episode. On, it depends on on how well your other stores are working and can this store support it for a while. And, and you work, you, you do all your things. You, you know, you have a checklist. You go yeah. through, do I have a people problem? Is there, is there a cleanliness issue? Is there a, a, a location problem? Is there a com- competitive problem? And you look at all those and you start to turn the dials mm. to see if you can make a change. And, you know, most of the time, it's a people issue. I was just going to say, and you keep on saying people first. Is it usually yeah. people? Yeah, it's usually a people problem. Usually it's somebody that just doesn't have the skills to build a loyal uh, base of people coming through the door and, and building relationships. And usually that's what it is. Or not being able to keep a store clean or not being able to hire the right people in the store. You know, it's those kinds of things. Gotcha. But, you know, you work them all. And then there's a point in time where you say, thank you very much. You know, we're yeah. done. 
I got you. I think we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I'm happy we did. There was some good advice in there. So bringing it back to your timeline, um, how did you find yourself at this firm furniture store? I mean, I think that was the big, the next chunk of your life you spent at this furniture store. Uh, it's a family of origin stuff. You know, brother had a store, brother had a store. Then my dad had retired by the time I was 12. So I, you know, I was looking, for, I need part-time jobs. And so my brother hired me to desk furniture Okay, and I'd get on the trucks and help deliver furniture. So you're 12 years old when you started this furniture store. How old were you when you yeah. left? You, I know you said spent some time here. I spent 25 years in the home furnishings wow. industry. I was in my, in my mid third, mid to late thirties when I, uh, when I got out of the furniture business. So you, so I, yeah. You really developed, right. it came into manhood during this time. It must have been a really, oh, yeah, you learn a lot. Yeah. And you know, working in those kind of businesses where everything matters, you know, you got to sell stuff, you got to deliver stuff, you got to buy stuff, you got to advertise stuff. Every, all of it goes together to make it work. Now, there are some, so, there are some lessons yeah. I pulled from your book that I definitely want to touch on. But before, I'm just curious, what were, if you could sum it up, like what were the biggest people or, the, or who were the biggest people or the biggest lessons you've had during this 25 years run at the furniture store that we can reflect on in our time today? Well, I had so many mentors mm-hmm. along the way. I had, uh, um, when I worked at Levitt's Furniture after I left my family's business, I worked at Levitt's Furniture for a while and I had a guy named Gene Borzik. And he was kind of one of the original guys at, at Levitt's. And I don't know if you remember Levitt's or not, but it started in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And, okay. And it became a big chain. And Gene was my, he was the store manager. And he taught me so much about how to work. I really didn't know how to work. What do you mean by that? And that that you got to give it your all, you know, and uh, it's, this whole idea, it's where I figured out that balance in life wasn't the key. Yes. It was integration. Yes. You, had to, you had to make it all work together, work, home, uh, recreation. Everything had to kind of fit together. There was no such thing as balance. And Gene, taught, Gene taught me that, and so I became a really hard worker. I mean, I, you know, I would, I would be there all hours of the day. I would be the one out picking the cigarette butts out of the parking lot, and, and so, you know, that was a big thing. Another guy, uh, Howard, guy, I, I got to yeah. jump in real quick because it's like you're reading my mind. I, you read my mind. I made a note and I was hoping that, that this would come up in today's conversation. If it didn't, I was going to make sure it came up. Uh, you, you quoted something along the lines of your life's work is still your life's work, which is something that I mean, it's kind of out of context, but you had this moment where you were laying down in bed and you were like kind of depressed that like you're you're retiring and like well, how am I going to do? And this 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 quote came into your mind. Your your life's work is still your life's work. And how did that resonate with you? Well, I at that time I had retired from Starbucks and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I used to always warn people at Starbucks: you are not Starbucks, and Starbucks is not you. You were mm-hmm. a whole person before you came to Starbucks, <laughs> and you'll be a whole person when you leave. Mm-hmm. And I fell into the trap because Starbucks was really, as much as it was Howard Schultz's baby, it was my baby too because I'd been, I was there so early. And I really brought the people idea that it was all about the people to Starbucks. So I was, you know, I was enmeshed. Yeah. You know, I, was in a, I was in a long-term relationship and totally in love. And then I, I retire. And now what the hell's my life about? Yeah. And a- it was a disaster. It took me two years to get my footing back. And I was really got depressed. Um, and I was laying on the sofa in Palm Springs, in my house in Palm Springs. And I really was thinking, I was reading a book, and I was thinking my life wasn't worth living. 
you know, which is a hard, long way to go. Now I wasn't, you know, so serious. I wasn't serious about killing myself. But the point was, is what's my life about? And as I'm laying there, all of a sudden these words came into my head. Hey, Howard, your life's work is still your life's work. Your life's work is still your life's work. Came out of nowhere, out of out of air, out of thin air. And I said, yeah, that's true. What? My life's work is still my life's work. And my life's work was about people. Mm. You know, my mission in life is to nurture and inspire the human spirit every day, beginning with myself first and then for others. And that's how I live my life. And that's how I was living my life at Starbucks. Yes. Yeah, did we sell, did we sell and serve coffee? Yes, we did. But it wasn't my that was not my life's work, selling a cup of coffee. I enjoyed doing it, and it was fun. But my life's work was developing people. Yeah. I mean, Starbucks was, Starbucks was just a vehicle for you to live your life's work. It was a, exactly. It was That's a tool exactly to do so you could do your life's work. It was just yeah. it provided the means, but you're not defined by that. But I love no. that you said that because I love to say myself that there's no such thing as work-life balance. There's only your life's work. And yeah. if you make, if you live intentionally enough to you know, you, well, you know your purpose, you know, you, and we're going to get into this. And when you know what your hat is, and we're going to get into yeah. that real soon, you can live intentionally to the point where your life is just your work because it's so aligned. And it's, yeah, and I'm exactly. sure. Exactly. Like, and that's what you're looking for. Yeah. You want a fulfilling life? Wear one hat. Yes. Right? In other words, align all your, your whole life around who you are as an individual, which I call wearing your hat. Yes. Hat. And that's a great segue into one of the lessons you picked up uh, working as a young man. Um, we talked about this one mentor that influenced you. Uh, I think it was Gene. And he taught you how to work, right? Um, yeah. And then there was another lesson you, you learned about under, and I think basically when you say wearing, what do you mean by finding your hat? What does that mean? Finding your hat? Well, there was another mentor, a guy named Jim Jensen, who's still a good friend today. And he was the one that got me to, first of all, to believe that I could do it. I could do anything I set my mind to do. I never thought about life in those terms. And the other thing he did, he introduced me to servant leadership. And, you know, I didn't really, I didn't understand what servant leadership was about. Robert Greenleaf came up with the term, term, but the beginning of servant leadership is you need to figure out who you are as a person. And I went through some struggles in a company that I was at where uh, the CEO of the company wanted me to be something different than who I was. Although the problem was I didn't know who I was. So when he said, Howard, I want you to change, I was saying, change from what? Because I thought I was being okay. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you want to be a great executive, then you're going to have to learn not to show your emotions. Mm. And the other thing, if you want to be a great executive, you're going to have to learn not to say anything when somebody asks you a question, but show that you're really a thoughtful person, you know? And so that was counter totally to who I was. I didn't realize who I was, but it was counter to how I acted. And so, you know, I got severely, I, again, another time in my life when I was really had high anxiety because I was trying to become something that another person wanted me to become. Mm. And I didn't have any defense against that. I couldn't say, well, yeah, but here's who I am and why are the things you're asking important. And so uh, I began that journey of identifying who Howard was. And When did this journey this- start for you? I know, sorry to interrupt. You were 12 years old when you got out of the furniture store. You were yeah, there for 25 years. I was about years. 27 when I started, okay. when I did this work. Got you. And so I, somebody gave me a book and I or said to buy a book and I bought it and it was basically about learning about yourself, developing yourself. First chapter of the book said, first thing you want to do is identify what your eight core values are. 
and how those values inform the decisions and actions you take in your life. And so you have to write something about it. So you can't just say, I'm honest. You have to, if it was honesty, it could be a core value. Say, what, what things will you not tell a white lie about? What, you know, how do you want, what does honesty mean to you? You know, are there times when you might be dishonest? And if those are, why? So you have to define what honesty means. Then the second chapter of the book talked about creating a, a mission statement for yourself. And so in those days, you know, I was 27. That was almost 50 years ago. You know, there were mission statements. You're kidding me. Nobody talked about it in those terms. Probably there were people, but, but you know, that was new to me. And so I did. And at that time, I was in the home furnishing business. So my mission statement was to be one of the most uh, uh, wanted to be a totally a respected leader in the home furnishings industry. You know, pretty base stuff. And then, and which has changed, you know, mm-hmm. from then. I'll get to that in a minute. But, and then the third chapter of the book talked about, in, in a paragraph or in some words, define how you want to live your life. And that's when I came up with my six Ps. The six Ps are these. Is the first P is everything I do in life has to have a purpose greater than myself. Right? It has to have meaning. You know, the widget maker, making a widget that goes into a printing press that and the company delivers a magazine or a newspaper to, to inform or entertain somebody. So I have to make that connection, a purpose greater than myself. If I have that, then I might as well be passionate about it. Mm. So I don't want to be just on a line making widgets and not really feel great about what I'm doing. And I want to be passionate, even if it's just making widgets. I want to be excited, enthusiastic about making those widgets. And so, and that's passion. Then the next P is persistence. You know, in the, in, the, in the river of life, there are rocks, and we don't know where the rocks are. And every once in a while, we smack into one. You know, it may be a rock that somebody has put there, you know, that, and maybe a rock that just was buried, you know, just under the surface of the water, and we go boom like that. And we have to figure out in life how to get over, under, around, or through those rocks mm. or change our course. And that's persistence. We're still on persistence. That's persistence. Yeah, that's persistence. Any, I'll tell you the one th- word that I would describe every entrepreneur that I've ever known, persistence. That mm. would be it. I love it. That They are persistent. Then the fourth P is patience. And you'd say persistence and patience, aren't those opposites of each other? How do those go together? Well, they do because uh, persistence doesn't mean that you aren't patient about your journey. Sometimes you hit that rock, you know, and if you jump out of the boat, because you think that's the reaction that you need to do. You know, that old, no stressful situations, only stressful responses. The stressful responses jump out of the boat. When you might be just patient because the, the, the current will take you around that rock. Yes. And so sometimes you just have to be patient Plus, with your journey. And it's the long game, The first you have to be patient with is yourself. Yeah, and if you're playing the long game, which I, I, I hope most people are, if you're playing the long game, well, guess what? The long game takes time. You have to be yeah, patient. Yeah, long game it doesn't takes happen. time. Yeah. Exactly. Starbucks wasn't successful yeah. right out of the gate. You know, Howard Bihar certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking to a guy that barely got out of high school, had two years of community college, my best subject was beer when I started, and I, I became an aficionado of single malt scotch at the time <laughs> I left junior college, community college. So, you know, it, took, it was a journey for me of yeah. finding my way, believing in myself, learning lessons, learning what worked, what didn't work, et cetera, trying to decide who I was, how mm-hmm. that was going to inform what I did with my life. So then the fifth P is performance. That's one thing. Human beings don't like to be measured. 
You know, we just don't. You know, uh, teachers don't want to be measured. You know, they want to measure their students, but they don't want to measure themselves. Uh, sometimes business leaders don't want to be measured. People hate performance reviews, right? Mm-hmm. And I can understand why, because they're always somewhere in the future about talking about the past when real performance review is in the moment. Yes. Yeah, right? Not not somewhere out in the future. And it's, you're not talking about the past. You're talking about now. And so, uh, you know, performance matters. If your responsibility at home is to take out the garbage, then you damn well better be taking out the garbage. If you're, if you're married and you have a, a commit to a monogamous relationship, then that means you have a monogamous relationship. That's performance. If you commit to your boss to get something done at a certain time, that's performance. If you commit to, to making you know, your budget, that's performance. Now, we don't always uh, get done what we say we're going to get done. And the, the key to it is to making sure that we're letting the people that we might disappoint early in that journey. I might not make this happen. Or, honey, I'll get to the garbage later. I just can't get it done. I'm in a hurry. You know, whatever it happens to be. So performance is the fifth one. Then the sixth P is people. Everything we do in life is about people. It goes back to the idea that there's nothing we do in life that isn't about serving people. So those are my six Ps. And then my mission statement I gave you already, but it's to nurture and inspire the human spirit every day, beginning with myself first and then others. The reason why I say self first is what I've learned in life after living for almost 76 years is that if you're not okay with you, very difficult to do something for somebody else. Mm, man, I love this. And again, those six Ps, uh, starting with A, purpose, two, passion, uh, three, persistence, four, patience, five, performance, and six, people. Thank you. And what are those six Ps? Just one more time. Like You just call them the, gen- the general six Ps? or No, they're, they're how I live my life. I love it. There's yes. there the, how I do things. So you come to me with an idea. You want me to volunteer for a nonprofit. You, somebody comes to me. And, I, you know, maybe I have some time. But I want to know what this place is about. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to people before I agree to join. I want to talk to people that work there. I want to talk to people that are getting a benefit from this organization. And I want to see, do I connect? Because not everything that comes to you, do you connect with? Yes. And so I need to connect, and that's where the greater purpose comes into. You know, it, it, you know that organization. Maybe I don't connect, but another person does. Yes, and that's where that that's that's where you know that comes from. Howard, you know, you're, drop, you're dropping gold on us right now. And I just want to like kind of go aerial real quick to paint the big picture. What we're talking about right now is wearing your hat, learning about who you are. And what Howard is doing is taking us through a journey, painting a picture of what it looks like to figure yourself out. It sounds cheesy that we create our own core values. It sounds cheesy to have a mission statement. It, 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 it sounds cheesy to find out what honesty means to me. And But the thing is, you have to do this, this self-exploration before you have to know who who you are, what your strengths are, what your purpose is to, to live intentionally, to, to have a, wor- a life's work. And it sounds like you went through this late in your twenties um, and you found that path. And, you, and what happened when you started fully understanding who you were and what your hat worn right looks like? Get into that. Well, let me give you a quote, another a quote first. If you don't know who you are or where you're going, any path will get you. Mm. And I became, I wanted to be intentional about who I was. And so I really got focused, started to get focused. I first, I, you know, I created out of that exercise, I created a picture and words of Howard. About 50 words describes Howard. Mm-hmm. I've carried that with me for uh, almost 50 years. And it's changed over time, but it has my core values, has my mission, has my six Ps. 
And so, so because sometimes I forget under mm-hmm. stress, you know, sometimes I'll forget who I am and what I, what I stand for. So oh, man. Uh, that, that turned into what I call my hat. So that picture in how, of Howard in 50 words or less became in one word, my, or two words, my hat and my hat basically, you know, you've always heard uh, some people say, well, I wear, I have to wear 20 different hats. I'm not talking about that the kind of that hat. I'm not talking about the hat about being a parent and having to bring home the bacon and have teach your kids, not those hats. I'm talking about the hat that you wear that informs who you are. So you get up in the morning you, and you look across the bed and you look at your partner, their significant other or spouse, and you, and you say, oh, I better put on my spouse hat. Well, if you're doing that, then you're probably with the wrong person. <laughs> if, if you go to work and you walk through the front door of Starbucks and you said, oh, I better put on my Starbucks hat, you're probably working at the wrong company because you should be able to wear your hat no matter where you are. Yeah. Your hat should be, you know, if you want to have a fulfilling life, then you got to be wear your, wear your own hat no matter where you are. And yes. whether you go home to your parents' house, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was, and you know, when I would go home to my parents' house and my mother would cook dinner, I would become this 10-year-old all over again. I might have been 40 years old. And I would wait for her. I'd sit in the chair and wait for her to put dinner on the table, you know, and, uh, you know, it's and I became that child again but that's not the hat that I wanted to be wearing at that time of my life so I had to be the adult yes man I'm I'm loving this and a couple things that you you mentioned that I just want to put a spotlight on real quick sometimes you forget who you are and when you're making a decision about your life and your business it's so important to write these things down because when you need to self-correct, when you need to get back on that center line, it's there. You cemented it. And it's, it's yeah. as easy as opening your wallet and pulling out that piece of paper to, to get back on track. And that's why it's so right. important to write these things down. Um, you also if you don't write them down. You're not committed. Yes. And it's just an exercise in, in talk. And, and it's not, it's not, you don't mean it. Right. It's like writing goals down. Yep. You don't write your goals down. If you just say, well, someday I'd like to be, Fine, write it down. Yeah. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think is really important to understand, because this can be really intimidating, right? To, to commit to these things for the rest of your life that you're writing down. But here's the thing. It changes. You, you don't, yeah. you can, there's no rule that says once you write it down, you can't change it. Cause we, as people evolve, we change ourselves. Write it, write it in pencil. Yes, exactly. But just write something down, choose yeah. a direction and start right. going there. And then as long as it's heading generally North, you can hone into a single degree over time, but just start That's moving correct. in the general direction. Uh, and I just wanted That's to bring those correct. two, those two little nuggets that you dropped with all this has been gold, but I want to make sure my, my listeners heard that. Uh, and you also mentioned, um, the, the idea of you're always wearing your hat. And one lesson that we've learned at Restaurant Unstoppable is that the best restaurants out there are just an extension of the, the people behind the restaurant. Um, I hate right. this idea of concepts, right? Because how can you show up every day to a concept? Because you have to put that different friggin' hat on every time, right? But if you can just show yeah. up to an extension of yourself, how much easier is that? Yeah, it's like the word brand. I hate that word brand. And I always t- I know we all use it, yeah. but I always tell marketing people, I'm not a brand. I'm a human being. And if I'm working for Starbucks, that Starbucks is not a brand. Starbucks is me. Exactly. And all the people that as a reflection of all the people that work at Starbucks, you know, a brand is a, a like, a, a, you can run a, an ad for 82, for your product to appeal to 82 year old women that have gray hair and a purple earring in one ear. And you, you can, that's what brands do. They, they run advertisements to appeal to 
anybody they want, but who are they and what do they stand for? And why do people work there? Why are they committed to working there? And that's, you know, that's it. Howard, I'm loving this conversation. I really am. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Uh, we got to take one quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to continue the conversation. Uh, you're doing amazing, Howard. I'm loving this. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions no more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs that's awesome head over to restaurant 365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30 percent off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system a value of 5k we're back and uh i think now's a good time to start talking about the transition into starbucks um I mean, there was one little uh, job you took in between starbucks right. and the furniture is it worth mentioning that before we get into starbucks well, yeah, because it was the first time I'd ever been able to, to be lead, lead a company. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my mentor at at Starbucks left to go to a land development company, and I. Um, so you mentor at my Starbucks. Mentor, yeah. my, my mentor at Grand Tree, excuse gotcha. me, for the furniture business, uh, 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 went to a land development company, and he invited a bunch of people to join. It took me a couple of years before I decided to join because I was hooked on the furniture business. But finally I joined and I went to this company and I was there a few years. The company got in trouble and, and I, I raised my hand and say, I'd like to lead this company. And I got the opportunity. I don't know why, because you know, what, what kind of, what kind of non-college graduate uh, gets to be president of a, of a public company? Not very many. No. And so I got the opportunity and, it was when I really started, I got my MBA because the company was in trouble. It had cash problems, and I had, I had to figure out what to do. And every day, the, the workout, bank, workout guys at the Bank of Boston were calling me about how's the cash position, and they were bleeding the cash off the bank accounts. And I was working 18 hours a day trying to figure out how to make it work. And finally, it came to the point where we just weren't going to make it work, and we decided we would sell the company. And it's where I learned that sometimes you just have to put the keys on the table. And you, I said to the workout group, look, if you want to run it, you run it. And all of a sudden I realized that I had more power than I thought I had. Because the last thing that the bankers want to do is run your company. You know, they just want to keep the pressure on you. And yeah. so I, I got my MBA and I really started to understand how business really worked at that point in time. And and then a uh, company bought, bought us and uh, – I, I ended up with a golden parachute by accident, and I had a couple of years to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so uh, I did, and I decided I wasn't going to work for a company again. I was going to buy a company. Okay. And so I got interested in the specialty food industry. 
And I looked at a bunch of tea business. I looked at the ice cream business. And I looked at a company called Hickory Farms, which I settled in on. It was a franchise, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, that friends of mine owned. And so they were going to sell it to me for one times cash flow, which was an incredible deal. Yeah. And, and so problem is I didn't have any money. And my brother-in-law was the only one that I knew that had any money. And so I went to my brother-in-law and I said, you know, I'd like to buy this company. Can you loan me the money to, to buy it? And he said, sure, but I want to go talk to somebody first. And I'm going to back up a second because out of this other company, uh, it was called Thousand Trails. When I left that company, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I had a friend that was an investor in early stage Starbucks. When Howard Schultz bought the company from the founders of Starbucks, he was on Howard's board. You know, it was about maybe 10 or 15 stores at the time. And he said, you ought to talk to Howard Schultz. And so I went and I talked to Howard Schultz, and it seemed kind of interesting. But Howard had a list of 10 things that he was looking for. He wanted a VP of operations. Well, the first thing on the list was college graduate. I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Second thing on the list was food and beverage experience. I didn't have that. And, and finally, we got down to number 10, can you breathe? Yes, I can breathe. <laughs> that was the only thing that I qualified for on that list. So we said, thank you very much. We passed said, nice to meet you, and on my way. And about a year, so I, as I'm looking for this business, and I got my brother-in-law uh, says, I want to go talk to somebody who knows something about franchising. He says, here's where I want to meet. And it happens to be the Starbucks office building, the little old <laughs> Starbucks office building. And we're going to meet a guy named Jack Rogers, who was kind of like Howard's original investor, and he was looking out for the investor's money. So he was hanging out around Starbucks a lot. So we went to j- meet with Jack and I was pitching my heart out about why I wanted to buy this company, why I thought I'd do well at it. And Jack just looked at me and said, why do you want to do that? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. You could have heard my brother-in-law's sigh of relief all the way down to Los Angeles from (laughs) Seattle, that he wouldn't have to load me money if I got a job, right? And I said, well, I've talked to Howard already, and he had a different list, and I don't think I fit. He said, well, things have changed, and we haven't filled that position yet, and you would be perfect for that. And so, you know, I met with Howard again and a bunch of people. And I said to Howard, I said, Howard, look, why don't you let me work in the company for a week? You look at me. I'll look at you. I'll work for free. You know, we don't, no time cards, nothing. And so I did. I want to work in the plant. I want to work on the trucks. And I want to work in the stores. And I did that for a week. And I came back after that first, that week there. And I said, this is a place that I could attach to. And I, 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 for some reason, got right away that it wasn't about coffee, that mm. it was about people. Yes. And so I said to Howard, I said, if you're interested in me, I'm interested in Starbucks. And he extended an invitation for me to join Starbucks. And that, you know, I turned right instead of turning left. Instead of going to my own business, I went to work for Starbucks. But Starbucks became my own business because it was so early. And my inclination was that. I, I didn't need a job. I didn't want a job, you know. I wanted to commit to something. And, you know, I never had any idea Starbucks would become what it became. I thought it was going to be this nice little coffee company, Washington, Oregon, maybe, maybe a little California. Never did I understand what it would become. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. What was it about you, Howard, in that, in that those first encounters that made you so right for the job? It was this, uh, the gentleman, uh, the second name, Jack, was it Jack? That said this Jack, guy? yeah. What was it in, what made you right for the job? What did he see in you? If you, if you I mean, you can't put yourself into his shoes physically and have his perspective, but if you had to guess, what would it be? No, I, I know what it was. What was it? It was my commitment to people. Mm. I, I was, by that time now, I'm 44 years old. I was formed as a leader. Yeah, you know, I was going to continue to learn and to grow, certainly, but I was who I was. 
You know, I was, my hat was so set on my head. I was never going to go through what I'd gone through before with that CEO wanting to change who I was. That just was not going to happen. And so I was forming, Jack, I think, saw that. And I'd been a customer of Starbucks for 17 years. I loved coffee, you know. And uh, so, you know, those kind of things fit. And I think he had, he identified with that. And I think the people I interviewed with understood what my commitment was. And so I brought that to Starbucks. Starbucks was really about coffee at that point in time. No, it wasn't about, it wasn't about people. Everything was about coffee. You know, we were going to be the coffee experts and we we're going to let everybody know that we were the coffee experts and we we're going to tell our customers how much we knew and they better listen to us. And I got in there and I said, that we're, you know, that's not how we're going to act. You know, we're going to we're going to give our customers what they want and what they need. And, and yes, we can inform them about coffee or the ones that want that. But the ones that don't, that just want a good cup of coffee hot or want a pound of coffee, uh, you know, we're going to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, he saw in you that you're about people, but you also said that after you spent about a week there, you you slowly started to realize that Starbucks was also about people. Um. So, well, it could become about people. Yeah. That it's that we weren't in we weren't in the coffee business serving people. See, they saw Starbucks at that point saw themselves as in the coffee business, and I I said we're we're not in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. Sounds like a small play on words, but it's huge. And that, believe it or not, that little saying has stuck at Starbucks over the, all these years. I love it. And, and what, I mean, paint that picture of what about people looks like. And that's kind of a broad question, but are you picking up what I'm putting down? What, is it, what does it look like to be an organization that's about the people? That is, when it's about the people, that means every decision that you make, you think about its effect on the people that are working in the organization and the people you're serving and the people you're buying from, and the people in the communities in which you live. Every decision you make has to be made based on your commitment to serving those people. And we serve our customers in different ways. We serve our, the people that work in the company kind of different ways. But it's always being treating them all with respect and dignity. Yes. And, and always loving them and caring about them. Yes. And I'm so happy that you're, you're getting into this because you, you talk a lot um, in your book, I think you dedicate at least two chapters to to trust and yes. how to and how trust and, and respect are kind of go hand in hand. So, uh, get into trust. Get into why trust is so such a keystone in a people forward business. What is trust? Trust is everything. Mm. In life, trust is everything. You cannot have a relationship unless you have trust. So how do you right? how do you so that, get it? So you you always I always believe in giving trust before you get trust. Mm-hmm. You you give love before you get love, and so that means somebody that you you, you make an acquaintance. You know you don't all, all of a sudden because you, you you meet somebody you don't immediately distrust them, and that's a pretty dark way to live life. And you know so you give trust. Hey, this is a nice person. I'd like to get to know more about this person. Now, maybe over time you find out that this person likes to shoplift. You know, you go with him and you go into a drugstore and all you see him put something in his pocket. Well, all of that, that, you know, all of a sudden, do you trust that person anymore? No. All of a sudden you see how they act. And that, that's the same way at work. You know, you build relationships at work, people you work with. So you always give trust. You always trust them first until they prove they're unworthy of trust. And, you know, and people think that, well, people should trust you before you trust them. 
No, it's not that way. It's the other way. And so, but trust makes the world go around. Right? Do you have a significant other? Are you married or anything? Nah, who's, who's got time for that? <laughs> okay, you, know, so you have friends. I do have plenty of friends, yes. Yeah, do you trust them? I like to think I do. Okay, so you can't have a relationship, a good relationship without trust. Yeah. If you're married, how can it, if, if, and if your significant other is fooling around on the side, can you have trust in that person? Nope. Okay, and that you can't trust them. How can you have a relationship? No, I it doesn't hear. work, and that's the same way in business. If the people you're serving, those people we call the human beings we call customers, don't trust you, how can you have a relationship with them? And so when you break trust, right, when you break trust with a customer, you know, they may come back to you once or twice more, but, but they'll find another place to go. What's the most common way you break trust with a customer? Uh, is, is how you treat them by not respecting them. Uh, you break trust when you don't treat them with respect and dignity, when they come through that door and not paying attention to them, not listening to them. Not only listening to them with your ears, but listening to them with your eyes. What, what does that right? look like, listening to it with your eyes? It's just paying attention to how they're focused. Where are their eyes? What's mm. their face look like? Smile on their face, frown on their face. Tension in their face, non-tension, relaxed face. And being responsive to that. So one of the things you mentioned in your book, and you might have mentioned it, and if you did, I, I apologize for missing it, is that you build trust with good communication. And this is something that I was yes. hoping we'd spend a lot of time talking about today, uh, working yeah. into that. So, so give us a lesson on good communication and how good communication builds trust. Well, communication is everything, right? Let's say that you're married and, and um, uh, you, you know, you've been together a long time. The only way to have a long-term relationship is if you have really good communication. If you, if you listen to each other, if you talk with each other, if, you know, if you save up all your stuff, you know, Oh God damn it. He left those damn socks on the floor again. Oh, that damn toilet seat. If he leaves that and pees on that toilet rim one more time, I'm going to kill him. If he, if he comes home late every night, he says he's going to be home by six o'clock, right? You better, you're going to have, if you wait until all those things build up and then you go, boom, you asshole, I don't want my marriage to you, you know, right? That's not good communication, right? Yeah. Good communication is conversing all the time. Good things, bad things, whatever it happens to be. That's the same thing in the workplace. And so, you know, in order to have trust, you have to have good communications. You have to be talking to each other with love in your heart, always always thinking the positive about intentions of the other people as best as you can. And when you do that, then you build trust. So good communication is about constant communication, yes, uh, constant. not waiting for things to build up and then to, oh. to say something. But in the moment, this is kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier with uh, performance, performance reviews, yeah. performance review, enormous review. I mean, think about performance <laughs> reviews. Yeah. Every six months, I'm going to give you a performance review. So I go back and I made notes over those six months. And you say, I remember, remember that day in June 1st and you did X, Y, and Z. God, that was not very good. You need to fix that. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't work, does it? Nope. No. And so good communication and performance reviews are in the moment. You see something going on that was good, you know, and you say, hey, Jim, God, I really love the way that you presented that information. That was outstanding. And here's what I liked about it. You know, or, hey, Jim, 
you know, you, if you, you might want to think about the words you used when you were, you know, and it's, it's ongoing and often. It's all the time. And it's, it's not, you know, it's, that's what makes it work. And that's what performance reviews are all about. They're not reviews. They're, it's good communication. That's how you build trust. So good communication. And I can't think of, I can't help but think of our, our friend, um, don't know him personally, but I would love to get to know him, Danny Meyer, who says yeah. constant gentle pressure. And it's that yeah. constant gentle pressure of yeah. correcting and communicating both good yeah. and bad communicate. Like, yeah. it's like you did that wrong. You did this right. But it's that it, you're not correcting the process or you're not correcting no. the person. You're correcting the process, right? You're correcting the process yeah. and you do it with love in your heart. You know, you got to assume that everybody wants to do the right things right. That's what you got to start there. And when they don't, then who owns it? You do. And then, and that's when you're, when you're talking to people, when you're coaching, it's always with love in your heart. I love it. Uh, there's one other thing that I really, and I don't mean to give your whole book away. I think we're still leaving a good chunk of the, the, right. the good stuff you, you put you up can, there. You can give it away. But it's, it, I, I love this. I, I highlighted the crap out of this, Howard, when I was reading it, and I, I went back to read it again before today's conversation. Uh, is this, and it's the first time I ever heard of this un, until reading your book was compassionate emptiness. And a part of the good communication, I think what you're saying is it's that constant gentle pressure of, uh, of correcting people in the moment and giving them feedback in the moment it takes, it takes that for trust, but it also takes, um, compassionate, sorry. Yeah. Compassionate emptiness. What the heck is compassionate emptiness, Howard? Okay. Before I answer that, I don't want to leave what you just said, uh, go away. It's, it's not just correcting, right? It's coaching and reinforcing mm. good behavior. People you. do, uh, you know, uh, that old, what's the old saying? Or that old, uh, it was in the uh, one-minute manager. About catch people doing the right things right. If you're always catching them doing the, the things wrong, that's the way you move people forward is when you see them doing something right, not when you just see them doing something wrong. And, and, and you reward them and recognize them for doing the right things. So compassion and emptiness. When I was, you know, it took me a long time to learn this. And I was, I don't remember, I was probably in my late 40s, and I was reading this book. And I'm a quote guy. I had quotes on my office wall, hundreds of quotes. And that's the way I learned. You know, mm-hmm. no college degree. So quotes were important to me because they informed me and they reminded me about things. And, I, I, you know, I always was struggling with my wife. She's a very smart woman. She is an oncology social worker. And, you know, uh, you know, men have a bad habit. We always want to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Well, you, women don't always want you to solve their problem. They want you to listen, mm. not solve your problem. And that's the same at work. People don't want you to solve their problem. They want you to listen to them, maybe offer some coaching. But you have to ask permission for coaching first, right? And so compassion emptiness means this. Being uh, compassionate about the person, Right listening to them, hearing what they're not saying, asking them questions, but empty of opinions, empty mm, of solutions. That's hard. It's hard to do. It's real hard, hard. to do. And I'm not, I'm not a perfect person to be talking about it, but I try to do it. I think just being mindful that it's a possibility is a start, Yes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And it's something that I have to deal with every day with these interviews is like, I have points yeah. that I want to make, but I got to learn to, to shut that yeah. inner voice down and just listen. Yes. And yeah. you know, uh, but it, what, what is the significance of that? Why is it so what's happening in, in compassionate emptiness of uh, this idea of, of shutting down what's going the, the the inner dialogue just to be receiving, just to be receiving, taking it in. Like why 
is that so powerful? Do we, do we know the science behind it? Uh, you know, people don't care. Don't people don't care how much, you know, they want to know how much you care mm. and it shows that you care. Yeah. yeah. Being knowledgeable or knowing an answer to something is not what people need. So if you're trying to grow uh, somebody in your organization, then trying to give them all the answers and the solutions doesn't help them grow, does it? And so you need to be able to do that. But it just says, you know, I respect you. I respect who you are. You don't need to me to tell you what to do. You're more than capable of figuring this out. Now, if you want an answer, if you want to know my opinion, then I'm happy to give it to you. But I'm always going to ask permission first. Yeah. And if you just listen and ask questions, um, nine times out of 10, these people are going to solve the problem themselves. They'll solve their own problem. And that's what you want to be doing. You want to be getting these people, your team members, to be solving their own problems and creating, I think, you, the, what's the term you use? Um, thinking individually, uh, a part of my my, you have a chapter, you know, the, the person who sweeps should choose the broom or whatever. I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm, bu- I'm butchering the quotes, but it's that yeah. mentality that like you want a, a, an organization of individuals and you want to empower people yeah. to think and to, 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 yeah, to, to not, give them You don't want all blonde hair, blue eyed, yeah. you know, all the same. You want people that bring different experiences in life and have different ideas and different reactions to things. It's same at home, by the way. Everything that we're talking about here is applicable to your life. Not to just work. We're talking a lot about the context of work, but it, it's your home life too. It's it they it all fits together. And the things you practice at work, you know, most of the time work at home. And the things you work if, at home, well, you can practice at work. Yes, Howard. I think I have you for another fifteen minutes. I think we're going to skip the speed round today and just keep this conversation going because I know okay. we still have so much of your journey to unpack. Uh, so we're going to take one more quick break. We'll be right back to kind of pick up the conversation. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners for a limited time get one month of free pos software three months of free digital ordering tools and 50 percent off implementation to ease the impact of covid19 this is a value of one thousand dollars one more time that's toasttab.com dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars so howard we're back we covered a lot a lot of the the things that i wanted to to talk about in today's conversation came to the surface organically and i'm super super grateful for that um we still have like 20 years of time at starbucks and obviously we can't cover every moment every year of that experience but reflecting back at your time at starbucks 
give me like a couple of like instances where either you or Starbucks grew significantly and let's try to dissect that and try to take how we can, let's try to replicate this in our own lives and our businesses. So moving along that timeline, you're with Starbucks. Uh, you realize that there are people organization, you help them scale to 15,000 locations. What were the evolutionary points for Starbucks that you can pinpoint or just one or two key ones? Well, I think the first evolution was when uh, we figured out that, that this was much bigger than we thought. And how that took place was uh, we started to open stores closer and closer together. And finally, I was up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and there's a corner called Robson and Thurlow. And it, it's, a, it's the corner of Maine and Maine. Okay. And there was a Starbucks store on one of the corners. And it, happened, it was a little tiny store at about 900 feet. And had, it was doing a million dollars a year. Wow. Big volume for 900 square feet. And it had a demolition clause in the lease. It was an old building. And I was sure that the landlord was going to one day boot us out and rebuild that building because it, it only made sense. It was a single-story little store. And so I said to our real estate person when we were up there, see if you can get that a piece of real estate kitty corner across the street. And it was it happened to be a heritage building, so I thought it would take us a year mm. if we were ever going to get it. And – Six months later, her name was Tracy Halgrimson, and she came back, and she said, Howard, I've got that store. And I said, oh, shit, now what am I going to do? <laughs> and because, you know, we had that store, and I said, well, let's take it because we don't know. And if it, you know, we'll try it, and we can always sublease a store across the street. I didn't know what was going to happen. The day we opened that second store, our volume on that corner doubled. Wow. We had two stores doing a million dollars a wow. year. One store we called the Bikers. And one store we called the Suits. Okay. And that's how different the customer base was. And that's when I really knew this thing was bigger than any of us thought. So we started opening stores closer and closer together, and it worked. You know, we'd have stores uh, less than a block apart, and it would work. We'd have stores in a grocery store. Then we'd have a store in that shopping center, and we'd have another store across the shopping center. Matter of fact, in Seattle, we have one that has, in a shopping mall area, we have four stores. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, that's the first thing. That was a huge transition. And that's when we realized this was bigger than we thought. So you realized the it second, was bigger than what you thought when you, when you could open stores within a certain proximity from each other. Yeah. What, what does it take to get to that point? What, what, what's the tipping point where you're able to do that? Because, I mean, I think at a certain point, if you're still like a, a smaller mom and pop with, say, five or ten locations, yeah. That that fear of cannibalizing your business is true, but what what was different? Yeah, well, at five or ten, we weren't cannibalizing. Yeah, at five, it was not till we had about when we really realized what it was was when we got close to two hundred stores. Okay, so w- up until that point, we were pretty spread out. So, what was the and tipping point that allowed you to do that? That I, I think that that's not something that everybody can achieve, or is it? Am I no, 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 it's not. It, it, it's a unique business. You know, it's uh, coffee is a unique product. If you drink coffee, you drink coffee, mm-hmm. right? And the demand for quality coffee was everywhere. Remember, every restaurant served a cup of coffee. There might be 10 restaurants in one street or in McDonald's and Burger whoever there was. And they were all serving coffee. So there was lots of coffee sales. And so we just the demand was bigger than what we thought it was. There were more people that wanted to come into our stores than we thought. And so it was just experimentation. Mm-hmm. The second major step when we realized – that people didn't want to just come and leave. They wanted to be able to sit down mm. and, and have a conversation, even if they didn't buy a cup of coffee. And so, you know, we started experimenting. Up until that time, 
I don't remember when, when we had about 50 stories, when I had five bar stools in the window or maybe a little table or with a couple of chairs to sit on. And all of a sudden we realized people wanted to come. We had a huge internal battle with inside the company. Well, how can we afford to do that? We can't just get bigger stores, right? That'll change the unit level economics back to the unit level economics again. So we started building some bigger stores to see what happened, adding more chairs. Lo and behold, what happened? Our business increased because people like you wanted to have a meeting there. Mm-hmm. We even built some stores with meeting rooms. And and so, you know, it, that changed the business. Uh, then, uh, then as we started to expand geographically, it didn't always work right away. We were used to opening stores and having cash flow immediately. And we started to open in Denver. We opened in San Diego. Those took about a year. And but we had to stay with it. Remember, mm-hmm. persistence and patience. Yeah. So we had to stay with those stores. Finally, those markets caught on. We realized then it began so we could open we could open in a new market immediately. It took off because people knew us by that time. Even though we didn't have a store in their area, they knew who we were. And so it was there were step the biggest issue that we always had is that we never had enough good people. We are always behind the curve. And it was always finding the right people to get on the bus and then making sure that the wrong people left the bus, as Jim Collins says. And and so that was always an issue. And it became an issue until we hit the downturn in 2007, 2008. Then all of a sudden we had too many people. So two things. One, you mentioned um – using persistence to let um, a community kind of get to know you and adopt you and accept you. And the other thing was um, not only finding the right people to get them on your, on the seats of your bus, but also getting people off your bus. Uh, I want to touch on both of those things, but pulling back a layer on how you get uh, these communities to, to accept you. I'm I'm sure that's persistence too, but how like how do we do that? How do we get like what were you doing? What what techniques were you using to get a community to know, like, and trust you? So that brings us all the way back to the beginning. Everything you do in life is about serving people, and if that becomes your mindset, then how you treat those people when they come through that door is everything. If you treat them like a with respect, with dignity, as another a valued human being, if you listen to them, if you smile when it's appropriate. Right. If you learn their names, if you know their drinks, you know, by and they walk through that door and by the time they get there, their drink is ready. Right. It's amazing what those kind of things do. You Starbucks was about building relationships. It's just like a restaurant that you frequent often. If you walk into that restaurant and like Glenn and I have a restaurant we love called Tillicum in Seattle, little small cafe like a New York cafe. And we love going there. We walk in and, and the, the waitress always says, Howard Lynn, how you doing? We haven't seen you for a while. Are you kidding me? I will never leave them. And that's the same at Starbucks. And that's what made Starbucks work. At the end of the day, it's certainly, uh, the coffee was good. It has, the coffee's our art. It had to be good. But anybody could do that. There are a lot, of, there are 21 other coffee companies when I started at Starbucks in the business. Many of them had more stores than we did. We focused on the people, on that interaction and that relationship between us and those human beings that we serve. And that's what made it work. So how, what was the secret for you in Starbucks to, I mean, cause Howard, you couldn't be in every Starbucks, right? And there was yeah. thousands of them. How are you letting, or how are these people that these young people that you're hiring, how are you getting them to give an F about 
the people? What things did you do to make sure they gave that F? Like, get into well, it. Well, it's, 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 it's difficult and simple all at the same time. It's how you treat them that makes that work. Mm. You can't you can't be patting them on. Hey, how are sales? How come your sales are down? So what what's going on with you? Get your store cleaned up, right? You know, uh, you know all those things. I got, I remember I retired once, and I and I came back from retirement. I walked into a store, and on the back wall, in the in the back room, was a sign: uh, "Be nice, be fast, be clean." And I looked at that sign. I just ripped it off the wall, and I said. How about we put up a sign, be human? Mm. You know, those fast food slogans, be nice, be fast, be clean. I want you to be human. That's what I want you to be. You don't need, it'll be whatever those other things are, but, but you know, we got to have clean stores, but that's not what I want you to focus on. I want you, and so we focused on being human. Yeah. And caring about people and, and how we treated them. And, uh, and then, you know, the tools that they had and then they figured it out mm. you know i remember a guy said we're kind of uh, there was a guy that was a, a, uh, a, a district manager said we're kind of like cheers aren't we i said yes we are exactly <laughs> like cheers i love it and that's who we are and you know and that's how it worked and it still works today and whenever we screw up it's because we didn't get that right not because we made a bad cup of coffee but was that when we've screwed up, it's because how we've treated somebody. I when we've it. treated somebody poorly. You also mentioned how to get people off the bus. And I, and I think that's no. something that's really important because we're always, sometimes when you know, we get desperate, we just need to hire people and we make mistakes, you know, and, and we're no. not always yeah, perfect. We, we make do. mistakes. We hire the wrong people. What things do you do to make it easy to offboard people? And I think that's one it's, thing we Go ahead. It's, it's communication, constant communication. It goes back to that you're not waiting for performance reviews and somebody comes in. They're defensive anyway, aren't they? And you say, you know something, Joe, you don't fit. Sorry, goodbye. That doesn't work. But if, if Joe has had constant communication about things that were working, but and let's say the things that are not working just seem to be mounting up, then you're talking to Joe all the time. Joe, this is an issue. Well, how can I help you get through this? You know, Joe, we talked about this. You know, this is just really... I'm not, are you really fit here? And, and Joe, usually what happens is Joe draws the four club and says, comes in one day and says, you know, I'm just not happy here. And Joe leaves, you know, and, uh, and sometimes Joe doesn't get it. And you have to say, Joe, you really need to find something else to do with your life. The important thing is love them and love them as much going out of the company as you love them coming into the company. Yeah, and I feel like it's just like this, like this idea of like, like you say, that constant communication and and opening the channels of communication to and yeah. to check in with them and give them these opportunities to talk to you, but yeah. also to do it from a place of compassion and yeah. not a place of like, what are you doing to me in my business, man? You're screwing up. Like, hey, yeah. like, are you okay? What's not? What am I doing wrong? Like, yeah. is there something like, like talk to me? And then if you just make, and if you do it from a place of like, I'm mad at you, then you're just going to get the same thing in return. You're right? going to get the, you'll get the pushback. Exactly. And they're going to be, they're going to be mad at you. And all of a sudden you're going to be missing 10 bucks a day out of your cash. <laughs> exactly. You know? I love it. Yeah. Great stuff. So, I want to give you an opportunity. I mean, this whole time I've been asking you questions, uh, pulling back the layers in your journey. Is there anything, I mean, you're still living your life's work. Right. Yes. Which is, and again, that is to, I think I, I wrote it down, but it's, it's to nurture and inspire people every day. I think there's a little bit more to your, your, your life's yeah, right. your mission statement, but 
what's one thing that you want to communicate? One, one thing that is near and dear to your heart that is a message you want to communicate to, to, to the, the thousands of restaurant operators that are listening to this. Now's the time to get that out to, to, to you know, to, to communicate that now. Well, it, it, you know, it all goes back to who you are as an individual. So the restaurant operator, the owner, who are you? What do you stand for? And how are you going to lead your organization? So, but the first step is figuring out who you are. But, you know, let's say that uh, your values are uh, you trust. You want to trust people. You want honesty, uh, caring about people, whatever it happens to be. You have core values and you define those. Then you have to be able to live those with inside your restaurant. You, you know, if, if your values are uh, um, making lots of money, uh, having everybody do what you want them to do all the time, you better reevaluate whether you really ought to be in the restaurant business. You might want to be, you know, something else in your life. And so I think decide, making sure that who you are aligns with where you are and what you're doing. So that's that to me is really important. And, you know, it's it's I don't care whether you're running a Subway or you're running a Dairy Queen or you're running the mom and pop restaurant in the corner. It's all about the relationships you build with the people that are working in your store and the people that you're serving. And if you show and act like you care about each of them, then they will show and care and act about you. Yes. I love this. That's, it's, that's, it's about that simple. I love it. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show to share your knowledge with us. And I'm going to have to get that second book and, Maybe okay. maybe I can get you back on the show in a year or two. Who knows? Uh, but, all right. All right, Eric. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great. So before I let you go, it's a tradition here at Restaurant Unstoppable. One thing I love to do is to ask my guest, who is one or two people you really admire and respect and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? That's how I found you. Chris Schultz called you out. Uh, who yeah. Who's one or two people that you just love and respect and think have knowledge in great lessons to share on this platform. A guy named uh, Jim Donald who worked at, was at Starbucks as took my place uh, when I retired and I got, and uh, he's kind of not totally retired. He, he was the CEO of Albertsons worked at Walmart and, and uh, when they got in the grocery business and a guy named Jim Allen, and Jim Allen was also at Starbucks. He became the CEO of Tom's Shoes. Okay. I, I was going to say, uh, I was thinking of Jim Selvin, but, but two Jim's. Jim, I'm, yeah, two Jim and Jim. Jim, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And you shared your mission uh, on the show today. I just want to end today with sharing the Restaurant Unstoppable mission. Actually, before I do that, how can we connect if we want to maybe have you come talk? I know you do, you're speaking around the country right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's any other reason we might want to connect with you, but what's the best way to connect with you and the services? You uh, either, either through my assistant, Kathy Lewis, Lewis at howardbehar.com, or write to me, hb at howardbehar.com, or my cell phone, 206-972-7776. And I will talk to anybody at any time. It may take me a while to get back because I'm a lot slower than I used to be, but I always respond. That's incredible. Thank you for being so generous with that. And uh, the mission statement, the way I want to leave you, my mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And when I say transform the industry, it's making an example of people like you. And and we'll transform the industry if we make knowledge accessible. And we can raise the bar on the industry by sharing values, by sharing knowledge, by sharing the ways to do things and making this information collectively accessible. And I just want to, I just can't say thank you enough for being 
one of the greats to, 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 to take time for me and Restaurant Unstoppable and to let me make an example of you. It's how we're going to transform the industry. And just thank you so much, Howard. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Howard Bihar. Man, you crushed it, dude. Such great stuff came from today's conversation. I don't even know where to start, but I love this mentality of unit economics and using unit economics to determine when you scale. And that's something that uh, Howard Bihar taught Chris Schultz and Chris Schultz shared on the show numerous times and just don't put your energy out, put your energy into your business and make sure all aspects of your business are tight before you decide to scale that. Like you don't want to scale mediocrity. You want to scale greatness. Uh, and the one reason for our existence to serve others is another big came, uh, takeaway from today's conversation. How do you not point that out? But the big thing that really stood out to me today and when I heard it during the editing, it just like stopped me in my tracks because we're in the process right now of bringing together past mentors, uh, past guests, my hand-selected experts, the people that I would go to tomorrow if I was opening a restaurant to learn from. We're bringing all those people together and starting in August, we're going to start having monthly themes uh, where we have these guest instructors going through workshops to take you through step-by-step what it takes to become unstoppable in the industry. And if you want to connect with these mentors and these guests and other Restaurant Unstoppable listeners and come together to live the core values of Restaurant Unstoppable and the mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, if you want to be a part of this community that that pops off starting August, I highly encourage you right now, hit pause, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash network, and there's a landing page there for you to get on a waiting list to stay up to date with what's happening in that community. And to give you a little bit of a hint, the masterminds we're hosting right now are an extension of that community. So if you're still interested in the masterminds, that mastermind is the best segue into the community. It's where you're going to be able to meet other community members and really become intimate with those people and develop friendships. Uh, but beyond the masterminds is the overarching greater mastermind, uh, restaurant unstoppable network and the cats out of the bag. We're doing it. And when I heard that Howard Bihar said, you got to start with figuring out who you are, what your core values are and what your vision is for your life. That is exactly where we're starting with this network. Those are literally the first few instructors. We have Ari Weinswag from Zingerman's coming to talk about visioning. Tom Walter from Tasty Catering coming on to talk about developing and living your core values. This is stuff that seems woo-woo and mushy-gushy, but it's so important that you get it written down and this is the place to do it and you don't have to do it alone. So come join our community, restaurantunstoppable.com slash network. Get on the list. All right, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.